The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. A couple references up front um, before we get into God's Word together. If you are not familiar with the Bible, we're in the book of the Psalms, and we're in Psalm 58. Um, so if you like, cut your Bible in half and then go to the left a little bit, they've got the big numbers. Psalm 58 is the one that we're in this morning. Um, some of you are going to want some resources, and uh, specifically about this, if you're looking for like a podcast to listen to, a couple that I've found really helpful have been um, when I know some of you guys are a fan of The Bible Project, super helpful podcast, and then another one called uh, The Naked Bible. Um, it's not as uh, risque as the title would <laughs> give. It's just... They look at the Bible, and they just consider the Bible in its own context. Um, I'm taking a class from the guy who's running that podcast right now. But here's what we're going to do. Um, all of my comments I'm just going to save for the sermon. <laughs> we're going to read the passage, and we're going to pray, and then we're going to start looking at this together. And that's where I will just make all my comments. We are in Psalm 58. Psalm 58. I'm going to read all 11 verses for us. To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a mictum of David. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No. In your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or the cunning enchanter. O oh God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O oh Lord. Let them, vanquish, let them vanish like water that runs out. When he aims his arrow, he sweeps them away. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this psalm, um, we are perplexed. What exactly is going on here? And yet, Lord, we, you give this picture for us of your vengeance of righteousness against the evil powers of this world. So help us, Lord, to have listening ears to what your word is showing us and teaching us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, maybe more so, as Drew said, maybe more so than anything, um, uh, this is probably the weirdest sermon I've ever had to prepare. <laughs> this is why we like going through the Bible sequentially, because it forces us to have to talk about things that are weird or troubling. So... Um, the title for this sermon is A Biblical Horror Movie, and we're going to get to that in a second. On every slide of the, sermon, of the, of the notes up front is going to be the, the number-to-text questions. So as you have questions through the sermon, you can text them. They'll come up right here to my phone, and we can talk about them after the sermon, do a little Q&A. If there's no questions, great. I did a great job, and, you know, you guys should give me a raise for doing such a good job. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But... If you have questions, seriously, I could imagine this is probably one of those passages and sermons that's going to elicit questions. So 
That, that Q&A number will be on all the slides along the way. Um, so as we get started, um, I have um, an acknowledgement, an uh, apology, and a confession. Um, an acknowledgement is that, as you are probably well aware now that we've read through the psalm, this is nobody's favorite psalm. Like nobody says, Psalm 58 is certainly the one I want read at my wedding or my funeral you know, this is my, like, I feel the presence of God when I read Psalm 58. It's so troubling, in fact, that some uh, Christian traditions in their, like, reading through the Bible in a year plan, they remove this psalm out of the, out of the plan. Um, this one and a couple other ones, because these are called imprecatory psalms. So they just, they're so, like, I mean, we end with, he will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. <laughs> like, I don't know about you, but reading that at 6 o'clock in the morning does not prepare me to love Jesus in the morning. So that's why they remove it. My apology is that this sermon is going to be on the much more Bible nerd side of things. We are going to get into some major Bible nerd stuff. Like, I, we got some people who are excited about the Bible nerd stuff. That's great. I'm just telling you, I just want to acknowledge up front, we're going to be Bible nerding out on some of this stuff. So it's going to lean more on the teaching side rather than devotional side of a sermon. And then my confession is that um, in God's providence right now, I happen to be taking a class, a whole seminary class on this very topic. And so I'm chock full of Bible nerds. I've been reading some very dense theological works on this stuff. So um, hopefully that prepares me for whatever questions you guys have. Why do we have Psalm 58 in our Bibles and why are we looking at Psalm 58? Um, Like I said, these are called imprecatory psalms, but this psalm is a little bit deeper than just being like, God, those bad guys are really bad, and I ask that you would do bad things to the bad guys. Like, that's not what this psalm is really doing. It's kind of doing that, but it's almost taking us, it's basically taking us into this genre of the Bible that we might be able to call like a horror movie, right? A horror movie makes us deal with the realities of life. I've heard that Stephen King has commented that the reason we love uh, horror is because we fear our own death. And so we, we live through horror movies or stories as a way of living through very difficult things like our own death or traumatic events in a safe place. <laughs> that's why we don't like horror movies or whatever. And that's what Psalm 58 is doing for us. It's taking us into these deep and dark, almost horrific realities of the Bible, of the world around us, and saying, this is a part of the world you live in. It's a little horrific, Let's deal with it in a way that we see how God fits into the picture. So it brings out the scary dynamics of the world and helps us address how we live in this type of world. Again, Stephen King, he is the grand prophet of all horror. He has three categories of horror, and we're going to see this through this psalm. I'm not necessarily going to call them out, but I just think it's helpful to kind of have these kind of frameworks. He talks about, um, if he can't, uh, he talked about three ways of scaring people in his writing. Uh, the gross out, the uh, horror and the terror. Gross out is like you walk into a room and something splatters on your arm. You look down, it's green, oozy, and ah, it grosses you out. Horror is you walk into a room and a clawed hand grabs your arm. You know, you shouldn't have claws in your hand, that type of thing. Terror is you walk into a room, everything um, looks exactly the same, but you know, you can tell that it's a copy of what was there before, and there's somebody else in the room You can feel them, you can hear them, and when you turn to see them, nothing's there. It's like, it gets under your skin sort of terror sort of thing. That's why I don't watch supernatural horror movies. They they freak me out a little too much. We've got that going on here. So, here's what we're going to do. We're just going to say the main point of this passage, and then we're going to dive right in. 
because we're going to see some of these horror dynamics of how this world is a lot different than we would see at face value as we work through this passage. So in this psalm, we get a mix of all three of these things, and here's the main point of this psalm. Trusting God with the world's evils requires knowing how he finishes the story. Trusting God with the world's evils requires knowing how he finishes the story. Meaning there's a story, a horror story, that's really going on, and God's the one writing it. So first thing we need to see as we look into this story is who are our terrifying enemies? Our terrifying enemies, we're going to pick this up in verses 1 and 2, and this is where things are going to start getting weird. Psalm 58, verse 1 and 2. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? We're going to pause there. I want to focus in on that last word in that passage, you gods. That's where things start to make things a little bit more different than what we would expect this psalm to be saying. Because sometimes the way people read this is they say, okay, that, those gods, that's really not like a pantheon of gods. It's not anything spiritual. What that is, those are just um, Israel... Uh, elders who are being judges for the, for the land or for other nations. But here's the problem with that. At no point in the Old Testament, at no point in any point in the Bible, are elders or the, the people of the Old Testament, are Israelites said to have been put in positions of power to be called gods or to be judges of the world. That, that, that's not their position. At no point are they ever called to be gods over nations. So who are these gods that are being addressed? What is the word going on here? The word Elohim is the Hebrew word for God, and it's the same, God or gods, and that word is being used here. It's the same word that's used to describe the Lord, God himself. It's a word that is just, it's a blanket term for a divine being. It's a divine being, Elohim, God's God. It just, it speaks about the divine being, a spiritual being that is um, in existence that does not have a seen reality, right? It's an unseen divine being. Now, what this draws us into is this category of biblical teaching called the divine council. The divine council, um, and we're going to go through a bunch of passages because we're going to have to take this word here at the very beginning of Psalm 58 and kind of eject out to see how this all ties back together. So we're going to swing back to Psalm 58, so chill out. But the reality of a divine council is this, uh, this picture in the Old Testament that there are divine beings, gods, who God himself has created and reigns with over the world and then ultimately is in, cont- is in uh, contest against because they have rebelled against him. So here's what we're going to do. In the ancient worldview, there was an unseen spiritual hierarchy just like you have in the world. And that's what we're going to see through several biblical, biblical texts, that God himself created these divine beings, these gods, to be the divine council in the same way that he created Adam and Eve to then reign with them over the created world. So in effect, as like you would have like in a kingdom, like Queen, is it Elizabeth? She's like the longest reigning monarch or whatever. She's the queen She's got her whole entourage, her council, and they are like the figureheads of rulership over England. In the ancient world, that's how they understood like the, the hierarchy of a king and all of his minions around him who ruled the world. And so what the Bible is showing us is a picture of God did this with an unseen realm of spiritual powers, and God did that through Adam and Eve through the created powers. So you have two families of God 
in the Old Testament that are pictured through these uh, hierarchies. So what we're looking at is the one called the divine council. So we're going to jump over to Job 58, sorry, Job 38, verses 4 to 7. And here's what we're going to see. This is, the create, this is prior to creation. This is a, a picture of what happened with the Lord prior to creation. Where were you, he's addressing Job, when I laid the foundation, bases sunk. Who laid its cornerstone? And here's the part where we need to pay attention. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. You'll notice that it's subtle. But basically what he's saying is when everything came into existence, there were already these other creatures who existed called the sons of God who did what? They shouted for joy, right? They sang together. They celebrated at what they saw happening, right? These sons of God is the same category that's used all through the whole Old Testament to describe these divine beings and the stars as well. The stars, is a, uh, the ancient world just assumed because the stars move that clearly they're divine beings. And, you know, just you have to accept the ancient worldview regardless of the science of the day that the sons of God were divine beings who existed at the creation of the world and sang and celebrated what God was doing. So we have at least at base level these divine beings that were there. So that's why, for example, at the very beginning of Genesis, in Genesis 1.26, when the Lord says, let us create man in our own image, he's not speaking to the Trinity. That makes no sense. Holy Spirit, who shares the same mind and heart and desire and will as me, let us gather up our will and create mankind. That's not what's happening in the Trinity. God is saying to the divine council, let us create man in our own image. Now, who does the creating? Only God does that. But he still addresses the divine council as a part of bringing them into the fold, bringing them into the picture of how he designs the world to exist, a created realm and an unseen realm. Now, we're going to jump over here to Psalm 82. We see this picture again. Psalm 82. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the, midst of, in the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. See, this, this one's very straightforward. But if you just take it at face value, it is very different than how you picture this. What is it like for God to reign in heaven or to be God himself? Well, here he is. The first word is Elohim, God. The second gods is just Elohim, plural. It's the same word for both of them, which is an indication that we're talking about a divine being who has other divine beings with him that he sits in council with in judgment, right? So yes, the Lord himself is the one God who is reigning and true and eternal. He is separate and supreme and unique. And yet there is this, this picture of other divine beings who reign with God. He sits in council with them. You don't sit in council with people that you just kind of push around. You sit in council with people that you rule with. This is the picture that we're seeing here in Psalm 82, and it begins to kind of like turn your brain a little sideways. You're like, so the Lord sits in council with other gods. Like, is this like a Marvel movie? Like, what, what is this? Like, are these the Celestials, the Eternals? Anybody looking forward to the Marvel Eternals movie? Sorry. Are these the Eternals? Uh, maybe, but so... These are spiritual beings. They're not humans. Typically, what you'll sometimes hear is that these are humans that God is sitting in council with and judging. But again, you never find a picture in the Old Testament 
of the Lord calling anybody else humans gods. The only time you begin to find that is actually after the Son of God takes on human flesh, and then he, as a part of us becoming a part of God's family, makes us sons of God. There's a connection to all that stuff. We won't get there today. Second, third, third verse I want to pull out. Last week we talked about Psalm, uh, Deuteronomy um, 82 and how it relates to understanding Psalm 57. We saw how the Lord himself had wings and brought people through the divine judgment of chaos into peace with him. Here we have Deuteronomy 32 again, and we read this last week. I'm going to read it again. So there's a little bit of a backstory here. Remember, we've been seeing this picture that the Lord has the divine counsel, gods, other divine beings that he has created to rule with him. Here we have in Deuteronomy 32, Moses singing a song about the event of the Tower of Babel. to their inheritance when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob has allotted inheritance. Here we have a picture of God coming down to judge Babel. And if you remember the story of Babel in Genesis 11, the verb or the, the moment where it describes God coming down, what does he say? Let us go down and judge and see what they're doing. See, he, even in that story, he is addressing the us. Who are the us? It's these divine council beings that he then goes down, disperses or disinherits the nations, sends them out. He disperses them, sets them out, different tongues, nations, tribes, etc., extends them out to the world. And then this is telling us that he then gives basically a territory, so to speak, or a governance of one of those divine beings over each nation. Matt, you go and rule over Egypt. Make sure that they keep it cool, whatever, you know. And Matt did a horrible job, you know. <laughs> he rebelled against God. That, that's not, nothing against Matt. But here's something to notice. How many nations are in Genesis 11? Anybody know? 70 nations. <laughs> One. No, the table, it's called the table of nations. There are 70 nations listed in that table. In the literature of the pagan world of the world of the other religions of the time around um, Israel, the Hebrew people, when this book was written, so 3,000 years ago, Urgite, the worship of Baal, you know how many divine beings are in their divine councils? 70. So, like, you, we, we see Baal all through the Old Testament being addressed. Baal, he has a council of 70 beings. So when it says 70 nations in Genesis 11, and then he's saying, I put the number of, of the sons of God, these divine council beings, over the nations, I'm not sure if there's exactly 70. But he's specifically making a point of, look, you guys all have your account for how these divine beings rule. Uh-uh. Our God he rules, he's got divine beings too, but he rules over them in a unique way. And he, as it says here, keeps the Lord's portion to himself. He keeps Israel to himself to, spe- to, to write a special story. Now, real quick note, does anybody know where else uh, the number 70 gets used as a council term throughout the Old Testament? If you remember when Moses, he needs to rule the nation of Israel, how many elders does he assemble? 70 elders. And then... There in uh, Luke chapter 10, when Jesus begins to send out his disciples to spread the nation, to spread the word to the nations that he is now the king and ruling, 
How many disciples does he send? 70. <laughs> so I'm not big in the new biblical numerology, but there is pattern, there are patterns, and they're designed to draw our attention into there is one God who rules through the spiritual and physical realm, and he does that through having spiritual beings and created beings that he rules through. So this is why, for example, Paul, we're going to get to this in uh, first Ephesians 1. He'll, uh, do we have this verse up there? Ephesians 1, 21. He talks about Jesus being far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above everything that Jesus is being put in over. And you'll notice these are all uh, governance categories. Authority and rule and power and dominion. They're not like aisles at Walmart. <laughs> aisle 32, aisle 33, Jesus has got them all covered. No, these are governance categories that he rules over. And these are categories of divine beings. Again, I'm not sure I understand all of this stuff and how it fits together, but the picture is to say, here we have the Lord reigning over a divine council of beings who are supposed to rule the world with him in a righteous way. Righteous way. Now, let's go back to Psalm 82 and then back to Psalm 58. Psalm, 58, or Psalm 82, verse 2, this is what the Lord says to the divine council when he sits in council with them. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked. Let's go back to Psalm 58, and we'll start this psalm again. Do you, do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No, in your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. That verse suddenly makes much more sense when you have this whole category behind you. See, God's not just talking to bad presidents and kings. He's talking to these divine councils who have, as Psalm 82 says, judged unjustly. Or here, the picture is, when they, the, verse 2, in your heart you devise wrongs, your hands deal out violence on the earth. The picture is, you know, holding up the curtain so that more violence can come through, spreading your hands out to make a way through the, you know, like if you're walking through a field and you're trying to get through the grass and you kind of like part the grass like that, that's the picture here. These divine beings using their power and authority that the Lord has given to them to make way for what? Violence and evil in the world. So now, to use our picture of what we're talking about with the horror story stuff, it's not just bad people <laughs> that exist who do bad things. There is more going on in the stage than just bad people doing bad things. There were bad spiritual powers who are paving the way for bad things to happen, right? These spiritual beings, and what, this is, again, you can ask Q&A, we'll follow up on this stuff. We're not going to go much more into this stuff, but there's a whole much more that could be said about how we get to these divine beings who are rebellious against the Lord. But clearly, they've rebelled. They've rebelled in a way that then brings violence against God's design for life and flourishing, and God is angry with them, and he's bringing judgment. So now we're going to jump into verse two, three, to, 3 to 5. So we've looked at our terrifying enemies. We're going to pull a little bit of it together. Verse 3 to 5, our experience of evil. Verse 3 to 5, and this is pretty straightforward. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like um, venom of the serpent, like the deaf adder that, doesn't, that stops its ear. 
The wicked are people who don't listen to the Lord, uh, the designs of God, right? There is a moral code written into the DNA of the universe, and the wicked say, we won't do it, we're going to make our own way, and we're going to follow our own path. And the picture that's being played out here is that they follow the path then that has been made way for them by these divine council beings in rebellion against God. So, for example, you don't just get a Hitler because some guy got kind of gassed in a World War II uh, trench and then is just has these crazy ideas. There's a culture, a feel, that then enables and, and propels somebody like a Hitler into power, like a Hitler into power to then exterminate 6 million Jews and 500,000 you know, Catholics, Protestants, homosexuals, whoever it was else that they just didn't deem was worthy. Or what was it, 61 million from communist Russia from 1917 to 1987 that were killed? That's a high number. Those don't just happen because people are bad with bad ideas. There's a spiritual power dynamic. There's something else going on in the world where they, they enable and perpetrate these horrible events. There is some spiritual mojo going on that's just worse than just like, ah, you had a bad day, you know? So why do we have this? Why do we need to talk about this? Behind the curtain of the world is a spiritual world and rebellion against God. You can call this territorial spirits, evil influences, demonic oppression, whatever it is. But there is a spiritual reality to the world that's darker and deeper and more evil than we just kind of generally think about. We live in a modern world and we just think of our five senses and what we can scientifically prove. And unless you want to be an island, and it's not only the history of the world, but the global church, that's just not the reality. The global church knows very intimately the powers of evil and how they work, and they experience them. We experience them too. Examples of spiritual powers we can go down the list on. I mean, we could start talking about anything that is corrupting and destroying people at their soul level to be a violation of their humanity that's just like, you can't quite put your finger on it. Like, bro, if you ever looked into any of the QAnon stuff, that stuff is whacked out. <laughs> but that stuff legitimately probably is a part of like these spiritual forces of evil. There's something weird about it. Like I, I've, yeah, I grew up in the internet days. I followed all of that message board stuff from the very beginning. And there is something twisted about it. That's not just, hey, you know what? Hmm, I watch your YouTube videos and make a lot of sense. There's something weird about it. The addiction that people face. I mean, we meet in a recovery center. I mean, some of the most demonic things I've ever experienced have been related to power dynamics and addiction. And people experiencing addiction experience a deep upper opposition of, the, of dark, dark powers. There's something weird going on with that. The homelessness dynamic in our city something that's suppressing people's humanity or in controlling them in such a way where just basic human functions and needs, they'd rather get it from the Merrimack River than try to like, you know, and I'm not blaming any, I'm not blaming the homeless for being homeless. I'm just saying there is something in our systems and structures for people and for government that is a principality of some type that is enslaving people. Um, you could go down the list. You think about like all the ways in which Women feel marginalized or oppressed or ignored within the church or within the workplace. Like it can be anything from like workplace sexism to you know the way we marginalize women within the voice of the church. 
Anything that leads to, verse, <laughs> verse 2, dealing violence, a, a twisting of God's design in the oppression of other people, there is not just people making bad decisions to do bad things going on there. There is more going on in the picture. Wherever there is violence to destroy or suppress, it's not just horrible people. They have a horrible power behind them. That's the horror story that the psalm is inviting us into. Now, we're going to take a turn here towards the end of the psalm where it gets a little gory. (laughs) But the picture that we're trying to paint here is that there is more going on. And it probably tracks with a lot of our experiences. Okay. I apologize. We're probably going to go another 15 minutes on the sermon. You guys cool with that? Okay. Okay. Mike's clapping, so, you know. (laughs) Verse 6 to to 11, God's victory for our worship. This is, again, going to be fairly straightforward, but we're going to address this a little bit. God, break the teeth in their mouths. Again, if you can't terrorize somebody, you just gore them out. It's a bit of a gory picture. Tear out the fangs of the young lions. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like a snail that dissolves in the slime, like a stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your, your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether ablaze, uh, green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. Let's pause there. Let me just unpack a few of those images. The basic idea is think getting stopped mid, mid-sentence, right? So, um, and by the way, verse 6, break the teeth of their mouths. Um, that was in ancient uh, justice systems, just like, uh, again, again, not to be gruesome, but how uh, in some cultures, thieves had their hands cut off. People who were liars had their teeth broken. That was just the, the image. And so, the seven, let them vanish like water that runs away. Let them aim at their arrows. Let them be blunted. That picture is like somebody shooting themselves in the foot. Like, he intended to shoot somebody, and then he shot himself in the foot. Like, it's just like being dumb. <laughs> It's like, God, let them be dumb and shoot themselves in the foot. Um, again, and then verse 9, sooner than your pots can feel the heat. Basically, if you, ever, you, know, if you start a fire, uh, you have like the kindling in the middle of it that's supposed to start the rest of the fire. He's basically saying like, if you have like a strong wind that comes by and blows that stuff out, you're like, oh, I got to redo it. So basically, before that heat can even have any effect on anything, let's just blow it out. That's kind of the image here. It, it's things getting suddenly ju- cut off in the middle of them, right? So... God is not indifferent, here verse, verse 10 and 11, to the evil that he sees, right? The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind surely will, will, will say, surely there is a reward for him, for the righteous, for surely there is a God who judges on earth. We started the psalm about how these divine counsel beings were doing a horrible, wicked, evil job of being judges for the world. And here we end the psalm with the Lord taking back the reins, saying, I'm going to be the righteous judge. And the psalm ends saying, we will praise the Lord, not these divine beings, for being the righteous judge. He sees evil. He gets it. He knows it. He knows what's going on, right? There's more going on than just you and I making bad decisions and other people making bad decisions against us. And there's not just a picture of the Lord inflicting suffering in the world. There's, there's more to the story of where evil comes from. And God is saying to us in this psalm, I see more than the picture of evil than you can, more than you can imagine. Don't worry, I've got this. God's going to solve this picture. 
So this picture is here. We're gonna, I want to go into a fourth point that's going to kind of land us in the rest of the Bible story in this. But the reason we have Psalm 58 is not, uh, is, the reason we have it is not to scare us. It's disconcerting, but it's to sober us to the realities of the world. So how do we then live in this picture, right? We, we get Psalm 58, we're kind of like, okay, God's going to judge the divine beings, yay. <laughs> is that the rest of it for the rest of our lives? No, here we're going to, our life in the movie, we're going to look at two passages in the New Testament, Colossians 2, Ephesians 6, okay? Our life in the movie, in the horror movie, if you want to call it that, our life in this picture, there's two stages of judgment that we see laid out in the New Testament. The first happens at the cross, and we're going to talk about that for a minute. The one we're not going to talk about for a while is when Jesus returns and you see him living out this psalm. In Revelation 19, what do you find? A king who comes back on a horse with his, with his robe drenched in blood, like the end of the psalm, <laughs> dealing violence suddenly to the armies of the world who, who uh, gathered against him, cutting them off mid-sentence, and then leading his people into the wedding feast of the Lamb. That, that's what you get in Psalm 19. Go read it for your devotions tomorrow. It'll stir your soul to love Jesus. <laughs> We're going to look at here is Colossians 2, because I think after we've worked through this stuff, you're going to see these Colossians passage, this Colossians and Ephesians passage, in a much brilliant, in much more brilliant light. So Colossians 2, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. That term means something a little different to us now, doesn't it? Jesus, by becoming lower than the angels, by becoming a man, and take card stuff. He's saying, no, all authority over these divine beings has been handed over to Jesus now. In him, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having buried with him in baptism, which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working God who raised him from the dead. Next slide here. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities by doing this and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. At face value, you begin to read that with, there is a greater biblical picture going on here. Jesus did something not merely with our sin on the cross, but he did something in relation to these divine beings on the cross that is radically dip, that radically changes our spiritual zip code, so to speak. <laughs> code, so to speak. <laughs> now, I want to pull out something again on this. This is why I'm just saying I'm begging your forgiveness for going a little bit long on this. But the image of the cross is pulled from, from Leviticus 16. In Leviticus 16, there's two sacrifices that happen. There is the one that happens with the, the, the lamb. I'm, you might be familiar with the story. Lamb, unblemished lamb, sacrificed before the Lord, blood laid on the, on the temple, or the, the, the ark, whatever. There's another sacrifice that happens. Do you guys remember what happens? The blood of the lamb is thrown on the goat, and then what happens? The goat is, well, they, they just send the goat off into the desert. Actually, the details matter here. What happens is in the atonement, the lamb's, the lamb is slain in the temple, and then they, give the, they put the blood on the goat, or they, they lay their hands on the goat, 
They confess their sins, and the goat then is sent to, uh, I'm trying to pronounce, I forget how to pronounce this, uh, Azazel, A-Z-E-L. By the way, that E-L is the short for Elohim. So this is a divine being that's being referred to here. And in the ancient world, Azazel was considered the land of the demons, the land of the dead, those that, that demonic territory, the geography of the world around them. It was where the demons lived. And so what's happening when they lay there, they, 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 they deal with their guilt before the Lord, and then they confess their sins on the goat, and then they send the goat off into Azazel, the land of the demons. Well, it's a divine picture. Your sins, they're just giving the demons what they want. They deserve this. The, the demons, they inherit our sin. Like, that's what the picture is. Your sin is then separated from you because, well, it's put on the goat, and the goat goes off into the desert of Azazel and probably eaten by something or whatever. But the picture is quite simply this. God gives evil what belongs to it, sin. These demonic powers that we've been talking about, these, these forces of evil, what belongs to them is sin, which is why Psalm 58 is so vicious. Sin is vicious, violence against God's design. And here in the atonement, what happens is not only is your guilt and your sin dealt with before the Lord, but then what you be, the way in which you're tied to these elemental, these principles of the, of the world, these demonic powers, the way in which you're tied to them through your sin and also committing violence against God's design is then given over to them and released from you. You're liberated from owning that sin anymore. It no longer belongs to you. So that when Paul gets to Colossians 2, what he's saying is, Jesus took care of the ways and the powers of the world, these principalities, the claim that they'd had over you by your sin and way you're tied to them, and he canceled that record of debt against them. He gave it to them. He said, okay, you guys want, to, you guys want a claim on my people? Well, the only way in which you get a claim on my people is through their sin. So I'm just going to take their sin, and then you guys do your worst to me. And so when Jesus dies in our place, it's not merely that we are then liberated from the guilt of our sin before the Lord, but the ways in which we're tied into all of these evil systems and powers and principalities and all that stuff is then canceled with, the, with them. So that's why, can we go back to that, that slide? That's the end of Colossians 2. That, uh, that's why he says, he set this record that stood against us aside, nailing it to the cross, and it was by startling dynamic. You're like, what do I do with this? The first thing that we do is you recognize if you are in Jesus, they no longer have a claim on you. They may try to influence, oppress, come against you, whatever, but they no longer have a claim because all the claim that they had against you, your sin, it's been dealt with by Jesus' cross. Let's look at Ephesians 6, kind of fill this out a little bit, and then we're gonna, we'll close this up. Ephesians 6, finally be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil and the schemes of the evil one. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day. Having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith which, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit 
with all prayer and supplication, right? There's way, way, way more going on there that we had time to unpack. But the main point is basically you, you begin to pick up these flavors of how the New Testament authors believed in this whole divine counsel thing, and they kind of give some of instruction of like, not only are you freed from it by the cross of Christ, but then how do you live with it? Well, the crazy thing to me is that it doesn't get into like claiming territorial spirits or praying. It, it, it doesn't have anything to do with that, right? The, the payoff is just to say, there's a, there's a wider world than you're aware of. There's more going on than you can see. Okay, so trust it to Jesus is basically what he's saying. You know, like, that's, that's above your pay grade. Whatever territorial spirit's got his claim on Manchester, it's above my pay grade. It's above our pay grade. Jesus can handle it. He's the one in charge of all that stuff. He can take care of it. We don't need to go and, like, prayer walk all the streets. I mean, it'd be great to prayer walk all the streets, but you don't need to do it to get rid of all the, the, the territorial spirits. That's, that's Jesus' pay grade. But what do we do? We're aware of the schemes. We factor it into our own discipleship, and we continue to trust Jesus. We're just going to do today. We're going to trust that, you know what, there's going to be little flaming darts that are going to come after us. Those, those powerful lies that get under your skin, you're not worth it. You're worthless. You're a failure. All those, those sort of things, they're more than just sort of like, well, I got screwed up as a kid by screwed up parents. There's a demonic power to them. But the way in which we fight those things is by just simply raising the shield of faith, basically saying, I know that Jesus is truer than these powers of darkness. I know there's more to the story, and I know where the story ends. I know the story ends with their final destruction in the, in the middle of the sentence. I know that, they, that Jesus is writing the story. I know that God's got this under control, so we don't need to cast out territory spirits. Our job is just simply to trust him, and as Psalm 58 ends, praise him for his ultimate judgment and victory over these powerful dark, powers of darkness. So again, our main point for this, and we'll end with this, trusting God with the world's evils requires knowing how he finishes the story. So let's pray, all right? Jesus, as we've looked at this passage and considered this whole picture of what's going on, I pray that we would, in some miraculous way, be stirred to faith to trust you this morning and to know that there's more going on, but even in that bigger picture, you are still reigning and in control. So as to you, we look and trust. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.